Hello, this is Alex Granados, reporter for Education NC, and welcome to our podcast, Ed Talk. This week, our guest is Terrence Ruth. He used to work in education policy at the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation, and he's also a principal for an alternative school in Raleigh. Terrence, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Uh, so the first thing I want to talk to you about is a series that you've been doing for us at Education NC. It's called uh, An Open Letter to My Son, Miles. And um, for our listeners who haven't heard it, can you tell us a little bit about the premise of the series? Basically, I wanted to uh, navigate a discussion about the future of race and implications of race in education in North Carolina. And I thought it would be convenient to uh, make the audience my son so that the future implications would be relevant to that audience. So how do you hope your son responds to this column? Right now, he's, he's one, almost two, and uh, I would love to eventually see how he uh, views and interpret the letters once he's able to read them. You said you wanted to spark a discussion about race, but what sparked uh, your decision to do this series? Uh, obviously, you know, um, racism and race relations is a topic that is on a lot of people's minds right now. Um, was it the the cultural discussion that was taking place that led you to do this, or was it more personal? Ironically, uh, this was on my plate uh, even before um, the, the society, the culture, all the events that that we are currently looking back at today. Uh, because I'm in alternative education, the majority of my students are long-term suspended students, and the majority of them are African-American males. And I started to ask questions. Is this the only demographic that is struggling to behave uh, or perform in a traditional setting? Because traditionally, over 80, 90 percent of my students are African-American male. So that discussion was in my mind walking into this column before any of the major racial issues that were plaguing the nations right now. There weren't even on the radar at the time. So in exploring this issue and in your experience um, with the kids in your school, have you come to any conclusions on any of this? One thing I had to uh, realize in, in terms of the article and, and looking back at the 12 letters, it's going to take more than a year. And there's some things and there's some steps. There's also some, some very simple, basic uh, principles of prejudice, stereotypes, that, that is embedded in some of our uh, thinking I and mean, when we think of our uh, education period uh, that needs to be discussed openly, not just with adults, but with the students themselves. And I think that would lead to uh, a different discussion, a more healthy discussion around race and education, um, which is right now sort of avoided unless there's a major event, um, sort of what we've seen throughout this year of these letters. So... You work in an alternative school. What does that mean exactly? What, what's an alternative school look like, and, and how, how does it compare to a traditional public school? Alternative school is a broad, is a broad uh, umbrella. Uh, anything that's not your traditional uh, schedule, your traditional building, your traditional students in terms of uh, what classes uh, they are able to select and choose, the pace in which students are learning. There's a certain pace, a certain curriculum, a certain set of classes that's traditional. Outside of that, you get your alternative schooling, which could be homeschool, which could be online learning, which could be 
uh, isolated environment, let's say a, a juvenile detention center, um, or even an isolated uh, environment for kids who uh, struggle behaviorally uh, and need to be isolated to address some of these behaviors, or special education, students who have emotional um, or mental disabilities that need assistance um, to maintain a healthy base of uh, learning process. Um, alternative uh, for me, in my context, when I'm writing them in the letters, I get kids who are uh, long-term suspended. Uh, majority of the behaviors are uh, suspensions due to either drug abuse, fighting, gang, etc. cetera. Uh, normally, the events that lead them to my school um, is not necessarily a criminal offense. Um, and so whenever I receive these students, um, they enter into a either a quarter, semester, or a year-long contract to address some certain behaviors before they return back to uh, their traditional setting. It's interesting because a lot of the issues you're talking about are the kinds of issues that affect things like academic performance, which is a topic that when you talk to policymakers and educators, they're always trying to figure out how can we improve educational performance for you know students across the state. Um, and you're working with some of the students who, I, I assume because of their behavioral issues and, and other problems, aren't performing as as well academically as some students at other traditional schools. So you're sort of addressing uh, the problem that policymakers are always trying to figure out how to address. Do you have any ideas for how policy should impact these kinds of students? Yeah, and, and, and I want to look at the students first. Uh, primarily, the students that I, I receive um, I normally deal with high school, so I'm normally dealing with ninth to 12th grade. However, when we evaluate them on an entry, they're normally reading and their math computation is normally middle school, um, late middle school, maybe even some as low as elementary in terms of their ability in that particular area. And we're giving, uh, we're giving the, these particular students with high school courses and we're seeing behaviors and we're seeing a certain value of education in each of these students. The majority of the students have very low value of education. Um, their performance is extremely low. Uh, we see uh, with this population that uh, education, su educational success um, almost seems as if they must become something else. They almost have to divorce who they are personally in order to succeed in this environment. I think at some point in their educational journey, they make a decision not to uh, fight that journey in terms of educational success. Now, that transpires in different ways. Uh, a lot of them are from single uh, parent households. Uh, many of them. Um, I have yet to have one wealthy kid. The majority of them are, are in poverty. Um, the majority of them are in the uh, worst parts of uh, Raleigh. Um, so I, I'm getting a certain group from a certain location with pretty much similar demographics. And I think when they arrive to my school, I think in their brain, uh, they don't even consider it a school. And so there's a certain value on alternative education that needs to be addressed through policy. There needs to be a certain amount of value placed, not just in words, but in funding. 
we need we need to put more attention towards these particular students because this population is only growing. And how do we meet that need head on? Um, I think we have to show the value um, um, through our dollars um, and through our, our focus and attention. So there's a couple of things that you touched on there that I want to talk about. One is the socioeconomics of the students that come to your school, and uh, the other one is funding. Um, you know, if you look back at, for instance, the release of the A2F grades the last couple of times, there seemed to be a high correlation between schools with a uh, high poverty population and low performance. Um, and then there's sort of a political divide between whether the way to help address some of the achievement problems we have has to do with funding. So in your work in your school, do you, do you see a way that funding can help bridge some of those um, uh, socioeconomic factors that uh, educators seem at a loss to address? I do. I, I do think, however, um, first off, that uh, money itself uh, will not cure uh, the issues that, that, that I currently see in, in a turn of education. However, I think uh, money sent to a particular topic brings a certain value, which brings a different employee, which brings a different quality of leader, which, which uh, also brings what I think is more important, a certain perception. And right now, uh, at my school, I fight perception more than anything else. Um, there's a perception that uh, our students are learning at a second rate. There's a perception that the teachers that's in the classroom with these students are of lower quality. There's a perception that uh, our particular students um, are unable to learn at their grade level. Um, so there's certain perceptions um, that, that persist and, and foster because there's very little value, and value, I think, is attached to um, how much money and attention is given to this particular topic. Um, so just spending money, I think it's, it's, it's a wrong uh, way to think, but how do we bring quality teachers, quality programming, innovative ideas, uh, new concepts to these students who particularly fail in that traditional environment? How do we create an alternative environment that's not only healthy but attractive to these ind individual students so that they can see or find hope in, in, in a turn of education and learning in, in their life, the, the aspects of their life, both single mother, poverty, uh, gangs? How do we help them see past that? And we need, we need new, innovative, uh, uh, alternative environments for these particular students. What role do you think race plays in all this? Do you think there there is a uh, a racial component to what's happening in our schools today? I I do a few studies on just prejudice itself, um, and and as humans, we all prejudge. We make prejudgments. That's how our mind functions, and what often drives how our mind organizes ideas is larger news and data and information. And right now, ever since I've been in education, you hear constant, massive, macro-level data that talks about the failings of African-American male students or the failings between the African-American male population and their counterpart white population. And this information, this constant stream of data that looks to the negative outcomes of African-American students has been internalized, and the students say it themselves. 
and I write on some of this in my articles, but it's, it's almost as if if you exceed in education, somehow you lose the aspects of your race and you become something else. I remember meeting a few of my students for the first time. I said, hello, my name is Terrence Roof. And they asked me, you know, how long have you been in school? I said, well, I finished my doctorate. And they said, well, you must, you must not be black or you must come from a family that has descendants or, 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 or of wealth. Not at all did they perceive that blackness can also be intelligent. And it almost seemed like you have to choose one or the other. And I think race and the perception of race impacts education in that way. And I, I think that's a deeper root that has to be addressed in our culture. And that will take time. It would take longer than a year. It would take longer than my, more than my articles. And I think that's where our focus needs to be. Well, it's interesting because we're having this conversation in February, which is Black History Month. And one of the criticisms of Black History Month is this notion that we have a month to talk about black history in America when really black history is intertwined with white history and Irish history. <laughs> you know, the entire history of America is, is really one history is the, is the criticism. Um, what, do you think that there's value to black history month that, that it helps people, um, you know, look at the history of African-Americans in a new light, or do you feel like it um, detracts in some way from moving beyond the racial issue? I think to, to one degree, um, when I look at moving beyond race, um, I'm looking at how technology allows us to interact, um, creating and modifying our own personal spaces, um, introducing people to our, our hobbies, our likes, our dislikes, our, our character before even a physical engagement. And I think that's the future beyond race. I think there's going to be an engagement in, in our personalities before there's engagement in our physical bodies. And I think uh, what we need to do in the meantime, before that, before that environment uh, becomes a, a norm, we have to allow kids to see where they come from. I think, it's, I think that is relevant. I think that is important. Um, oftentimes, these... Uh, black history figures become staples from which kids can pull from. But I think what's more important is the local black leaders that they see um, in their neighborhoods. And I think the most significant part of Black History Month is it pulls out those leaders um, that you normally don't see. They're normally hidden. They're normally um, just doing their job without any uh, need for attention. But uh, it's during this month that you get to see some of those local leaders um, have a presence. And I think the local leader, the local uh, change and efforts and the movements of unity in the black community is important um, because sometimes the kids can't identify outside of larger mainstream uh, 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 black identities. They can't see the local aspect. And I think Black History does a good point. The Black History Month of February does a good point at, at highlighting uh, leaders who are actually impacting local change. Um, but to that argument, I think if we just focus on individuals who are no longer living, so you have your MLKs, you have your Malcolm X, I mean, we can go on and on. Some of the you know, mainstream names that you see and hear every February, 
if we just go to those who who passed away, I think I think we speak to a a, a a generation that's lost, and so we're trying to look back to see success again, or we're trying to look back to see some glory days. And I think that the black space and the black community in America can look forward. I think there's great hope for for the black community in education. And I think we should look forward, and I think that's the limitation of, of February. I, I think it, it forces us to look back, but I think the benefit um, that should occur all year long is looking forward. And that's the discussion I want to lead for, for North Carolina. How do we look forward and give hope to some of these kids who can't identify with Martin Luther King right now or they can't identify with some of those great, great, great impactful leaders of, of, uh, of our black history? So I want to switch topics a little bit since you are a principal at an alternative school. You know, one of the issues that I've covered at Education NC a lot is the importance of principals and also the way principals are seen or treated um, by the education system. Um, what do you think is the value of the principal within, uh, you know, a particular school? What's the importance of a principal? I think I think. For principals, there's, 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 there's an external, outside of the school, how people perceive the school. I think there's an there's a importance there. And I, and I also think there's a major value to how the principal in a school setting creates the school culture. And I think that school culture can speak to inclusiveness for kids who feel isolated in a traditional setting. How can we include the more isolated students in this space, a principal leads that discussion. A principal leads that movement. How do we address um, socially uh, sensitive issues in a space where kids are coming from all different backgrounds and they're all colliding on a campus, a school campus? Who navigates those collisions? It's the principal. And I think the principal has a lot of responsibility in the experiences of young uh, future leaders of families, young future CEOs, young future job corps, job members, employees, et cetera. Principals lead how they perceive their future existence as an adult. And I think that principals in that that sense um, holds a lot of weight. And, And I think most of them feel that, that pressure. But there's a lot of pressure um, in terms of uh, what a principal can and can't do in terms of impacting a kid's life. And, and I think they're very important. In the discussion of, um, you know, educator pay, how to better support educators, um, coming up with new roles for teachers, the, the focus always seems to be on teachers in the classroom and uh, not as much discussion is given to principals. Do you think that principals get the support they need from the state and from policymakers? Getting support in terms of stability in one area or in terms of funding, um, that's a tougher discussion depending on where you're at in the state. Um, For me, uh, my position is unique in terms of uh, my support. Um, I've been uh, completely supported by... uh, the district I have been in, and I've been supported by my corporate office. But I think what's more important that we need to talk in terms of support is how do principals galvanize the support of the community? 
And I think that's probably the most critical point. Um, can principals hold that place in local communities where they can, uh, you know, ignite change for some of these discussions around race and prejudices? I think they do. And I've been extremely supported by some great community leaders in my area. Um, I've never had to fundraise for any event. Um, they have brought together a integrated group of uh, community volunteers, mentors. I've had support from the local universities. Um, there is some community support that made my life a lot easier in the school setting. And I think that support, I think, will hold more weight. If the community is speaking and holding up that school and that principal, I think that will hold more weight um, on social issues such as race and, 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 and uh, some of the other issues around teacher pay or some of the other issues um, around student needs. I know from my school site, um, the community seen the need and they addressed it personally. They, they, they uh, went full force and uh, supported our, our needs, supported our efforts in, in that area. And, uh, and I'm forever grateful to the community for that support, to where I, I, I didn't have to uh, yearn for support from policymakers or the district itself. The community really took control of our space. Well, Terrence, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Terrence Ruth used to work in education policy at the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation, and he is also a principal for an alternative school in Raleigh. My name is Alex Granados, reporter for Education NC, and this is Ed Talk. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>